Everybody had their extra hour of sleep? Good to go. Does anybody know who sings that song? Johnny Cash. That's right. What's the name of that song? Walk the Line. You may have heard it. You may have seen a movie about it. Johnny Cash, Walk the Line. It's a pretty famous song, right? So there's some cool things about Walk the Line. The first thing is, for you music lovers out there, the key change tempo loosely revolves around a music theory idea called the circle of fifths. Who said it? Someone knew it. Dang, girl knows her stuff. So circle of fifths. If you're bored one night, Google circle of fifths, read all about it. The other thing that's interesting about this song is the lyrics. Cash wrote them specifically for his wife, Vivian, as a fidelity pledge while he went on the road with Elvis in the 1950s. He wrote it for her to say, hey, look, babe, I'll be true. I'll be on the road with Elvis. None of that hip shaking stuff for me. I'm just going to play my music. Um, So he also said that he meant it as an oath to God. And so his producer, Sam Phillips, a famous guy, ran Sun Records, one of kind of the quintessential studios that came out of that period, really wanted to shy away from gospel music. And so Johnny Cash convinced Sam Phillips to record this song because it was about his wife, not necessarily about God, but Cash says that it's kind kind of both. Now, we'll come back to that song in a little bit. So my name is Sam. I've been going to E3 about seven years. Occasionally get up here and guest preach, depending on what I've said. And uh, whether or not, if you see me again, it means they were happy with what I said. If you don't see me, it means they weren't. Uh, so we are going through a series, God Part One, God is as God does. And that's kind of the story of the Exodus. So to recap where we are, we've talked about God delivering the Hebrews from Egypt having them uh, go through the Red Sea, literally walk through the Red Sea, right? And uh, kind of travel, God guiding them in the desert. And we come to this place in Exodus chapter 19 uh, and 20, where God leads his people to a place called Mount Sinai. And it's at that place they meet with him. And there's kind of a shift in his uh, behavior with the Hebrews, um, where there becomes some reshaping and reforming associated with who they are in relation to God. And it's through this specific thing called covenant. Have y'all ever heard of covenant before? Okay, Um, covenant. And we're going to be looking at that idea today. Now, the idea of covenant is one of the most important themes in the Bible, but it's also one of the most misunderstood 
and the most overlooked. When the staff asked me to teach on this topic, I was like, there's got to be something else. Anything else other than this topic, because it's a very dense topic and it's hard for people to kind of, it's hard to cover everything associated with this in a small period of time. And I've heard people describe the idea of covenant as the lost secret of Christianity. In other words, if you can kind of understand covenant, if you can unwrap that idea, then the Old Testament comes alive for you and the New Testament comes alive and just really just grows with a lot of meaning for you based on the idea of covenant. So what is covenant? Well, this is the simple answer. The word covenant simply means agreement. Simply means agreement. That's what the word means. Not a promise. That's one person telling another person what they're going to do, right? That's not what we're talking about. Covenant is something where two people or two parties solemnly decide to agree on something. A similar word, not quite, but close, maybe an oath, maybe a binding contract, or an alliance, maybe some other words that sound familiar to covenant. There are usually conditions associated with covenant. I'll do this, you'll do this, this is how we're going to do our thing, right? And uh, in the ancient world, covenants were very, very common between kings and subjects, between different groups of people, different tribes, and even family members that would have covenants inside of uh, their families for different ideas. Some were informal, some were very formal and had a lot of detail, but the bottom line was this. When you entered into covenant with someone, it was a big deal. It was a serious thing. So God chose the common form of interaction with covenant in order to convey his love to us in a way that everybody at that time understood, knew, and practiced, okay? So each covenant was different, but they often had kind of a ritual ceremony to mark when a covenant was made. The Hebrew word for covenant actually means to cut, and most of the times that's actually what happened. People would get a bull or a lamb or a calf, and they would cut it in half. It would fall apart, <laughs> and then uh, two representatives of a tribe or two people that were making the, uh, the covenant together would walk into the middle of the blood. They would stand there, recite vows to one another. They would exchange things of importance. If they were a farming tribe, maybe some tools, a warrior tribe or a hunting tribe, maybe a spear, um, or they would exchange uh, items of uh, artifacts of importance or jewelry or something something important to that tribe. And at the end, everyone in those tribes or those groups would sit down, they would have a meal together, kind of celebrating that covenant. And we still have echoes of those rituals in our modern world today, though a lot of the origins or meanings behind it, meaning behind it have, have left us as a Western society. Some of our terminology that we still use today revolves around the idea of covenant, like the idea of blood brothers, I remember being out in the woods when I was like eight, and my brother was six, and uh, we were just covered in dirt, traipsing around in the wood, and we had two family German shepherds, there they are, that would follow us around, make sure we didn't step on any snakes or up on some animal of some sort. Their names were Brutus and Pancake. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you why they were named Brutus and Pancake, that's a story for another day. But that's their names. You can see this, everything you know, need to know about my upbringing. We're celebrating Brutus and Pancake's birthday with a meatloaf cake that has been cooked with love and care by my mother. And uh, we had a good old country living for a while, upbringing. So uh, it was lots of fun. But I remember being out in the woods with 
Brutus and Pancake running around and my brother and all the neighborhood kids. And we would decide we wanted to make blood brother packs. Did y'all ever do this when you were a kid? Just Okay. Where we would like take a, a limb off a tree or something pointy. We'd like puncture our skin or cut it. And then we'd smack our hands together. All right, now we're blood brother. You know, I don't know how we did. I mean, it's terribly unsanitary. I don't know how we didn't die from like some Oregon Trail type stuff, dysentery, yellow fever, bubonic plague. I'm surprised we didn't get anything. We didn't. We survived to this day. I'm here to tell you about it now as an example in a sermon. So, um, so blood brothers. So how about this one? Blood is thicker than water. Have you ever heard of that? Okay. So people today have modernized it into the idea that blood, family, is more important than friendships. But the ancient and correct meaning for this is that blood of a covenant is more important or thicker than the water of the womb of family. So covenants are more binding and require more commitment and loyalty than even to your own family. That's how important they were at the time. Pretty cool, huh? So we have all these echoes in our religious and relational world that we still live with, and they're the the history of them is kind of kind of shadowy and hazy because it references back to these ancient covenant ideas, like fellowshipping around meals. You don't just invite anyone over for dinner, right? It's kind of a it's kind of a thing to invite somebody over for dinner. Someone you want to get to know better. You don't invite just some random stranger over. If your daughter's at college and is bringing some boy home that she's really interested in, you know, you usually meet them around dinner and it's like a big deal. You're introducing them to the parents, right? Things like that. So that's part of that idea of a, a dinner ritual, part of the significance of covenant meal. How about a marriage ritual? So in marriage, we walk down a center aisle. When you get there, you say, I'm on the bride's side or the groom's side, right? Those are the two tribes. You walk down the middle of the tribes. You go up front. You give your vows. You exchange items of precious value, your rings. And then what does everybody do? They eat. They eat. They have a covenant meal together. We call it a reception. That's uh, my reception. I married Amber, my sweet wife, on November 3rd. This day, one year ago. And that's a picture from our, our reception. Thank you, buddy. So I will say this before I go on. This isn't in the script. Sorry, guys. Um, for those of you looking for someone who loves you and supports you, have hope. Have hope. I found that. And you can too. If you're still looking for that person or you've been heartbroken, and God will heal you up, and he'll send somebody in your life to change your life. He will. He'll do that for you. So it's part of covenant. But for all the depth of covenant history that informs our world, informs our behaviors, our culture has been stripped of kind of the heart of covenant, the meaning of covenant. We don't really believe in the idea of covenant anymore. We say things like business is business. We say things like contracts are made to be broken. We say things like all is fair in love and war, which means whatever happened is what happens, and that's what happens, right? We don't really have any meaningful binding loyalty agreements anymore. However, my greatest proof 
that covenant is dead in modern world is reality TV. Reality TV. Shows like Survivor or Big Brother. Let's take Big Brother, for example. The premise is that a group of strangers live in the same house. They don't know each other. And they compete for the chance to stay in that house until there's only one person left. The way that you play the game is that people band together in these alliances, in these groups, these covenants, to protect each other to get to the end of the game. The problem is these alliances, these covenants, are not any stronger than any other thing that happens in the house. So people are sometimes, they got covenants with like two or three people. They got side covenants to their covenant. You know what I'm saying? And so that's what happens. And so because people are cutting the covenant on the side with all these other players, the alliances are constantly broken. People feel betrayed and drama ensues, which sometimes is pretty good drama. It depends on which season you're in. And even that last alliance of the two people that are left in the house, maybe they're the ones that, that took themselves all the way to the end, they end up having to break their own covenant with each other because only one person can win the game. And so as these people get stabbed in the back and they come out front, they're out of the house, they're talking to the interviewee and interviewer, and uh, they, they just say, well, that's how the game is played. Contracts are made to be broken. All is fair in love and war. It's, it's kind of a symptom of our modern culture. And here's why covenants in the Bible are different. There's not a winner and a loser. There's not a winner and a loser. God doesn't bind himself to humanity in order to discard them in the end. Most ancient covenants consisted of a ruler and subjects like a king and servants, something like that. But nowhere else in ancient literature does a deity, God, decide to enter into covenant with humanity. It's the only time it ever happens in your Bible, okay? It's something special, something unique only to God and the object of his affection, which is us. That's right. So sometimes we treat these passages, like Connor read, like they exist in a vacuum without any circumstances surrounding them. But what, what's really just happened in, in what was read? God has gone to great lengths to rescue people out of a horrible situation, and he loves them, and that's why he did it. And then he's inviting them into something more. So let's look at a couple of the verses that were read and kind of unpack them a little bit, okay? So back to verse 4. First thing, God says, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt. And one chapter over, right before the Ten Commandments, God basically says the same thing. He says, I delivered you. Let's start with things right up front. I have given you a second chance. I have given you the opportunity to live a full life apart from the slavery that you experienced in Egypt. Now, this is really interesting. Think about this. The God of the universe is giving people a reason why they should listen to him. Do you think the God of the universe really needs to give anyone a reason to listen to him? No, it's because he's God right? It's the idea. But God goes out of his way to do that, as if God wasn't being enough, right? You know, it's, it's part of what it is. I read a parenting book several years ago. It's called The Blessing of a Skin Knee by a therapist named Wendy Mogul. It's the book cover. And it's about raising children in kind of an old school, biblical, Old Testament, Jewish approach that 
creates a sense of self-sufficiency in children. It's a really good book. I read it twice. Commercial over. There you go. Go get the book. Anyway, so I read a sentence in that book when it was describing this part of the Ten Commandments. And uh, she says, God never says, because I said so, when giving the Hebrews or any of his children instruction. How many of y'all said that? Last week, how many of y'all said that? You don't have to raise your hand. It's easy to say that. It's easy to appeal to your position of authority as a parent to just say, just do what I said because. Just because I said so. That should be enough, right? So God never says that. Have you ever thought about that? God never leans into his position expecting for us to comply. He tells us he loves us, and then he reminds us what he's done for us instead. He tells us that he loves us, and he shows us how he's delivered us instead. It's the same deal, right? God starts out by saying, why we should trust him and enter into covenant with him without demanding our allegiance, but proving his case as a loving, protecting, faithful God. God does it the right way. God never says, because I said so. That's something we do, which we should probably not do that. After recounting his actions of deliverance and protection, he then moves on to this romantic, tender-hearted language that he uses in these passages. And it's shrouded in symbolism, so it makes it hard for us to pick up on it a little bit, but it very much would have meant something to the Hebrew people that were hearing those words through Moses. Look at uh, the second half of verse 4. It says, how I carried you on eagles' wings. I carried you on eagles' wings. Some other passages say, covered you under eagles' wings. Now, that sounds weird to us, but it was a very specific Hebraic idiom to describe the loving care of a mother to a child. Nurture, warmth, kindness, and quiet strength. Covering someone with wings describes someone not imposing their authority, not saying because I said so, but appealing to someone through love and gentleness. Appealing to someone through love and gentleness. Last weekend, I was in Birmingham, Alabama with my kids for a football game and a visit from family. And they live a little north of Birmingham on a farm. And uh, it's a cattle farm, and they have a bunch of houses out there, some barns and all kinds of stuff. And like any good farm, you got about five or six cats, farm cats running around, right? And uh, someone joked this morning that said up there in Birmingham, they'd probably be named uh, Bear and Sabin and uh, <laughs> Stabler and uh, Namath or something, but they weren't. I don't remember what their names were. But I saw my kids near the end of the, the trip um, with one of the cats being underneath the ledge of one of the houses, and my kids were down on their knees trying to coax that cat out from underneath the edge of the house, right? And I thought, that's what God does. That's what God does to us. He's not commanding us to come out, right? He doesn't appeal to us through his power. He appeals to us through the power of his love. Big difference. Not power, power of his love. The Bible continues to repeat that metaphor about the eagle's wings. Um, in a bunch of passages, and it even flows into the New Testament too. So Deuteronomy chapter 32 says this, God found him in the wilderness in an empty windswept wasteland. He threw his arms around him. He lavished attention on him, guarding him as the apple of his eye. 
He was like an eagle hovering over its nest, uh, nest, overshadowing its young. Then spreading his wings, lifting them into the air, teaching them how to fly. Isn't that a beautiful passage? I don't know if you noticed the first parts of that. God found him in the wilderness, found him in a wasteland, threw his arms around him, lavished attention on him as the apple of his eye. Can you think of a parable in the New Testament? Right on the front row, prodigal son comes home from the wasteland, big bear hug. And in that, they kill the fatted calf. They break out celebration on covenant terms to describe the reunification of a father and a son. So Jesus references this scripture when he gives that parable. It's all through the Psalms as well. Listen to some of these. How exquisite is your love, O God. How eager we are to run under your wings. How about this one? This one's good for North, or really all of Florida. I'm hiding out under your wings until the hurricane is over. Yeah, there's your Florida verse. Um, And Psalm 91, one of the best protective psalms, one of the most amazing psalms to describe God's love and protection, says God will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. Isn't that beautiful, beautiful imagery? That's the imagery that God uses when he thinks about you. That's how God describes his relationship with you. Isn't that incredible? It's amazing. So if that weren't enough, God moves on to even more aggressive lover's language in in verse 5. He says this, Out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. You will be my treasured possession, a treasure. Now, we don't like the idea of being anyone's possession, but think about this for a minute. We aren't talking about the objectification of owning someone. Everybody knows that is absolutely wrong. What we are talking about is someone committing themselves to nurture someone they believe has great value, like a child taking a parent's name. This is my child. I cover and take care of this child right? I randomly send my wife uh, texts and tell her she's an absolute treasure because she is. She's someone who deserves my respect, but also my loving care. And I don't mind caring for her, and she likes for me to care for her. I open the door for my wife, not because she's incapable. She's quite capable, trust me, but as a gesture of respect, of love, and of honor. And at the heart of this loving, treasured, motherly relationship is a central part of the covenant called the Ten Commandments. Everybody knows the Ten Commandments, right? If we didn't know anything about the Bible or church growing up, everybody knew the Ten Commandments. Now, most of us think of that iconic coach, Bobby Finstock, when we think of the Ten Commandments, the basketball coach. Do you guys know the basketball coach, Bobby Finstock? No? Okay. Well, Bobby Finstock is an American film icon from that critically acclaimed 80s movie, Teen Wolf. (laughs) Bobby Finstock, Coach Bobby Finstock. Now, I don't know if if you've seen Teen Wolf, and I don't want to give anything, any spoilers away. Based on the title, you may be able to pick up that it's about a teen who becomes a wolf. There you are. You know everything about Teen Wolf that you need to know. So Coach Finstock has given us such movie quotes as, it's not how you play the game, it's whether you win or lose. And even that doesn't matter that much. You know, a real, 
Real great coach, real supportive of his kids. And a lot of times we approach the Ten Commandments the way Coach Bobby Finstock approaches life. I'm fixing to show you a video of him helping some students, the guy's having some problems, they're in the locker room after a, after a uh, practice, and, the, guy, and the, the student says, you know, coach, what's going on here? And then Bobby Finstock gives us amazing wisdom that we can watch today. I get it, coach. What's that from? Let me give you a little advice. There's three rules that I live by. Never get less than 12 hours sleep. Never play cards with a guy who's got the same first name as a city. And never go near a lady who's got a tattoo of a dagger on her body. Now, you stick with that. Everything else is cream cheese. Great game there, Scotty. Thanks, coach. <laughs> Good stuff there, coach. Yeah, real life-changing advice for these... Uh, young, formidable minds that you're in charge of, right? And we look at the, same, the Ten Commandments in the same way, as a list of things to keep us out of trouble so that everything else can be what? Cream cheese. That's the way we look at it. But I'd like to challenge that idea today based on what we've been looking at. The Ten Commandments are actually called the Decalogue, or something called the Ten Words, Decalogue, Ten Words. And so we inserted the idea of commandments because that fits our idea of God better because we like for him to be stern and mean to keep us in line. So, but actually those terms are descriptive in nature. The 10 words are not a task list for good behavior. Do I need to repeat that? 10 words are not a task list for good behavior. They're a description of the actions of someone who knows they are protected by God and know that he sees them as a treasured possession. It's a description of what the love of God looks like when it's carried out by humanity in a love relationship. It's not an issue of compliance. We're agents of God's grace. And the 10 words give us an idea of what that looks like. It's what God's children look like when they're in relationship with him. But it's even more than that. It's not a finalized list like Coach Finstock's three rules to live by to keep you out of trouble. It's not a finalized list of 10 things. So there are a couple of reasons for this. First reason is just basic reasoning. Let's walk through this, okay? Do you think the 10 commandments cover all of life's situations? No, they don't. They cover some good ones, right? But not all of them, right? Do you think as Christians, God has ideas about how we should respond in those situations that the 10 man commandments doesn't cover? Well, of course he does, right? So it makes sense to see the Ten Commandments as a starting point, a guideline for which way to go, rather than a finalized set of tasks that make you Christian. But verse 8 says that even more. Listen to what verse 8 says. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. Now that's much more of an all-encompassing idea, okay? People can say yes to God's future requests, because they know that God is that mother eagle covering them with her wings while acting in their best interest. You ever been in a situation where you had to do the right thing, but you knew the person that was telling you what to do really didn't have your best interest at heart? That's one of the most difficult situations to be in. And God says, Don't, that's not what we're doing here. I always have your best interests at heart because we're in a place of covenant-loving relationship with each other. 
Okay, as the band comes back up, let's head back to our opening song, Walk the Line. When people ask me what the deal is with the covenant and the Ten Commandments, I always tell them, I'm not going to talk to you about all this. Go listen to Johnny Cash's Walk the Line, study the lyrics, and then you'll know everything you need to know about covenant and the Ten Commandments. I really do that. It's annoying to people. They don't like it. Um, But I want to read these lyrics back to you and then talk about it for just a little bit more before the band comes. Come on up, Jonathan. Before the band uh, starts playing our last song. So the lyrics, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds. Ends out, pulled tightly so that the knot doesn't unravel. Because you're mine, I walk the line. I find it very, very easy to be true. I find myself alone when each day is through. Yes, I'll admit that I'm a fool for you. That's Johnny Cash's version of your God's treasured possession. Because you're mine, I walk the line. As sure as night is dark and day is night, I keep you on my mind both day and night. And happiness I've known in that relationship proves that it's right. The results come to my life in a way that proves to me that I'm living the the right relationship with you. Because you're mine, I walk the line. You've got a way to keep me on your side. The goodness of God draws us to him, to keep us close to him. You've got a way to keep me on your side. You give me cause for love that I can't hide. I've delivered you. I've given you cause for love. For you, I know I'd even try to turn the tide. Because you're mine, I walk the line. You hear the fidelity? You hear the commitment? You hear the loyalty in those words? I am faithful to my covenant with you because I want to be, not because I have to be. I'm not keeping rules. I'm living the life that flows out of a relationship with someone that I trust and love. That's what it looks like. I'm living out the results of my covenant relationship with you. Now, the sad thing about this song, you know the ending part of the song? It's sad. Sad thing about this song is that Cash ends up cheating on his wife, Vivian, with June Carter, soon to be Cash, right? So why did that happen? Well, I don't know. It wasn't there. But I will say this song gives me an idea of what it may be based on what Cash says about the song. So in his own words, Johnny Cash said that walk the line was a kind of a prodding to myself. Play it straight, Johnny. A prodding to myself. Play it straight, he once said. Now listen, this is important, okay? Johnny Cash wrote the lyrics of covenant love, and then he turned them into rules to follow. He turned them into rules to follow. He had it right the first time. And that's often our mistake too, as well. Anything and everything we do should be a result of knowing that God loves us. It shouldn't be out of compulsion. It shouldn't be out of fear. It should be out of a place of love to know that we're secure to live a life in union with him without walking away from him. And we, in turn, can give that love right back to him, right? It's when we make God our moral policeman that we mess things up. It's when we make God our moral policeman that we mess things up. Don't make that mistake. See God as the loving, nurturing, protecting friend that he is. He's covering you with eagle's wings, that he sees you as a treasured possession, and that he'll deliver you from anything. Even if you don't know you're about to be delivered, he's going to deliver you. In fact, 
God thinks so much of you that what if we reverse this around? What if God's saying these words to you? What if God is saying, I find it very, very easy to be true to you? What if God sings to you, I keep my mind on you both day and night, and the happiness I have in relationship with you proves that it's right, proves that our covenant relationship is what I've always wanted? What if God walks that same line of relationship that we do simply out of a place of eternal, unconditional covenant love? The good news is that he does. That's who God is. That's who he is, except no imitation. That's who God is. And it's from that realization that we can walk the line as well. Amen? Amen.